It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this. All of My Mochi's fabulous flavors, like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream, are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings, or the midnight munchies, yeah, You know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. This week, a conversation with Democratic presidential candidate Michael Bennett on foreign policy and the 2020 race. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this most amazing program known as The Takeout, where each and every week, politics, policy, pop culture, and two rules we follow every single week. We are relentlessly curious, and we are steadfastly non-ideological. We want you to learn at this program. We learn in the process, and we want you to hear from lots of different voices across the political spectrum. No better Two episodes illustrate that very strong commitment of ours than last week and this week. Last week we had David Bernhardt, who was the Interior Secretary for President Trump, a full-throated advocate of the Trump agenda. Today we have Michael Bennett, Democratic Senator from Colorado. He probably has some issues with the interior policy of the Trump administration as well as others, but that's what we do here. Trump official one week, Democrat running for the nomination to defeat Donald Trump the next week. Good guests, great conversation, always, always built around what? A meal. Where are we? We're at the Dubliner, one of our favorite haunts near Capitol Hill. It's a great Irish pub. We're here for breakfast. And so, Michael Bennett, without further ado, it's great to see you. Thanks for joining Thanks us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, Michael Bennett, in addition to running for the Democratic nomination for the presidency, has recently written and published a book uh, called The Land of Flickering Lights, Restoring America in an Age of Broken Politics. We'll get to the book in a little bit, but I want to talk to you right now, Senator, about what is sort of the news volcano of the week. Uh, dealing with President Trump, former Vice President Joe Biden, his son Hunter, Ukraine, and allegations that the president might have abused his power in suggesting, perhaps very strongly suggesting, though he denies it, that the Ukrainians needed to do one thing or another to keep U.S. aid approved by Congress flowing. Your overall assessment? My overall assessment is that it's more of the same out of this president. I, I, I think he feels completely unconstrained by um, by the rule of law and by the standards that predecessors in this office mostly have set, uh, which I think is really worrisome to me in terms of setting the standard going forward for, for our kids, frankly. And um, uh, I think they should turn over the IG report. I'm on the Intelligence Committee in the Senate. If this place were actually operating like it's supposed to operate, we would be uh, providing the oversight, and and, um, and we should do it in a in a in a measured and thoughtful way. You mentioned the IG report. That's the Inspector General for the D- uh, Director of National Intelligence. 
from which this whistleblower complaint came. Right. You said a moment ago, if this were operating as it should be, what's what should be happening that isn't happening, and who do you blame? I think what should uh, well, I blame the administration because um, I think the president takes the view that whatever he can get away with is what's appropriate. That's not the way it's supposed to work. The IG report said that there was an urgent reason to 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 take issue with what the president did. Congress should have a chance to look at that. We've got ways of evaluating whether or not what he did crossed the line or not, and we should be doing that. And frankly, if he's unwilling to do that, then I think we should think about what action we can take to enforce the rule of law around this place. And what options do you see available to do what you just said? Well, the best option would be for him to send the stuff over for the intelligence committees to look at it, and then we could make a decision about it. But if, but if he's, absent that, absent that, I think that he's holding Congress in contempt, basically. And at which point, he shouldn't be surprised if if Nancy Pelosi finally decides that uh, the time has come to begin formal impeachment proceedings. Have you made up your mind about that question? I haven't made up my mind about anything, but I'd like to see. I'd like to see the report. So you would like to see the uh, inspector general's report, but uh, you are not yet willing, if I understand you correctly, to say there should be an impeachment inquiry of this president. Well, I'm, I'm, we, by the end of this week, I might be willing to say that, or by tomorrow, I might be willing to say it seriously, because I think they should have sent the paper over yesterday, and it's nonsense. You know, last night he was saying, this is going to be the most transparent thing you've ever seen. I'm going to publish the transcript. Well, he doesn't do it. He never follows through. And if you can hear it in my voice, it's because I really am worried that our democracy is at risk. And uh, I think it was at risk before Donald Trump arrived. I think he's much more a, a symptom of our problems than he is the cause of our problems. But but it is a disturbing pattern of, you know, just basically treating the place like it's his personal racketeering enterprise instead of uh, our our republic, which is what it really is. Those are strong words, racketeering enterprise. You mean that? I do mean that. I mean, it's just one thing after another from uh, from standing in the White House and telling the Russians uh, how lucky or how happy he was that he'd gotten rid of Mueller because now he wasn't breathing down his neck to trying to extort the the Ukrainians uh, to investigate a political rival of his. That's not the stuff that's supposed to happen in America. That stuff happens in in countries all across the world, but not here. Uh, I want to suggest to you that uh, in this audience for our show, which has on podcast platforms, on CBSN, and on 50 radio stations around the country, you have a fair number of Trump supporters. And they like what he does, and they like his administration. I want to play the president's soundbite at the United States United Nations General Assembly, and then I want to get you to respond to that. And think in your mind, you're trying to talk to someone who supports the president and explain to them why you're right and they're wrong. I did not make a statement that you have to do this or I'm not going to give you aid. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. Uh, there was no pressure put on them whatsoever. I put no pressure on them whatsoever. I could have. I think it would probably, possibly have been okay if I did. But I didn't. I didn't put any pressure on them whatsoever. You know why? Because they want to do the right thing. And they know about corruption. And they probably know that Joe Biden and his son are corrupt. Your response? He's a grifter. He's a grifter. What you just you, what you just played was an utterly I mean the the words of a of a of a grifter. There's no other word for it. I didn't have do it, and if I had done it, it would have been perfectly fine. And by the way, uh, Joe Biden is corrupt. I mean, this is his pattern of 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 uh, 
of approaching things like this, and it's to obscure the truth, to lie about it, and then to point in another direction. Why haven't we seen his tax returns? And why is it okay with his supporters that he's the only president in modern American history who hasn't put forward his tax returns? Why is it okay that two days after he said, I'll put the letter out, the statement out, and I, I, um, I and by the way, even if I had done it, it'd be okay, he still hasn't put it out? What major, why is it okay for him to have attacked my friend John McCain, uh, uh, who is one of America's greatest heroes, um, who spent five years in solitary confinement in Vietnam, make a joke about his, his being captured, a guy who has bone spurs? Why is that okay? Why is that okay? Any kid in America who did that, their parents would wash their mouth out with soap or whatever it is you do in the 21st century. And any, any, if your mom or your dad or your grandparent did that, you'd be ashamed. And you'd say, maybe they shouldn't come to dinner next time. But that's become a sign somehow of not being politically correct. Right. You know? And look, for the people that voted for Donald Trump who said, listen, the P- Washington, D.C. is a corrupt mess. Uh, they're not doing anything that's related to anything I care about. And we're therefore going to send a reality TV star to blow the place up. What I would say to those folks is, congratulations, you've achieved your objective. Now what are we going to do for our kids and our grandkids? What are we going to do for this country? Before we let you go on this topic, I want to read you something that the vice president said on Fox News last night. And I'll quote it directly. It's really remarkable that everything the media wants to assume about the president's phone call in July with the Ukrainian president, That Vice President Biden admitted to on camera in January of 2018 that he said that when he was Vice President of the United States, he had a quid pro quo. He said to Ukrainian officials that you will not get over a billion dollars in American aid unless you fire a prosecutor who just happened to be investigating a company that Vice President Biden's son was on the very board of. Your response? My response is, let's have hearings. My response is, put the paper in front of the Congress, you know, whether it's anybody. Put it in front of the Congress, and let's do this the way it's supposed to. Let's not creep around on Fox News like the vice president does. Go on Major Garrett. Go someplace where it's not your echo chamber. It's not an organ of the state. You know, we have a system in place of checks and balances that should not be ignored. So I'm unimpressed by what he said, and I'd love to see him hauled up in front of Capitol Hill, and he can answer questions, too. That's Voice of Senator Michael Bennett, our special guest here at The Takeout, back for segment two in just a second. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. We're at the Dubliner. Breakfast is en route. Mike, our spectacular waiter, will be bringing to us a moment. Uh, Senator Michael Bennett is our guest, Democratic nominee for the presidency, also the senator from Colorado. Uh, to round out this conversation, uh, uh, by the way, I want to be clear: we weren't here last night at the Dubliner. We arrived. Yes, we were. Yes, for yeah, exactly. This is, not, <laughs> this is not our morning after right. uh, conversation. Just we just arrived here about 10, 15 minutes ago. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you're running against uh, Vice President Biden, former Vice President Biden, and others in the Democratic field. To round out this conversation, are you comfortable with everything that Joe Biden either did or didn't do in Ukraine and his relationship his son may or may not have had? I, I am, but let, you know. The, you don't think we, it's an issue? I don't think it's an issue because the prosecutor that you and, and Vice President um, uh, Pence were talking about is somebody who's globally known for being a, you know, an incredibly corrupt person. Others involved in our alliances wanted him ousted as well. Exactly. So this is not a big deal. 
for Biden and should not be jeopardizing to his uh, campaign. Uh, I don't think so, but let's see what the facts are. Okay. Uh, I want to read to you a little bit By from— By the way, let, just, let's see what the facts are on all this stuff. You know, people are rushing to judgment every second of the day these days on, on everything, and let's see. And that's certainly, I, I would th- say in one regard, Senator, uh, the Trump White House would agree with you. It often says to us, and the president will wag a condemning finger at us in the media to say, you jumped to too many conclusions, you are too willing to believe the worst about me, and you don't let the facts rise to the surface. Well, it's because he's constantly obscuring the facts. I mean, if he would have everything from his tax returns to this latest phone conversation, he, never, he actually never divulges the information. He never does. It's the same shtick every single time, and he just waits for the news cycle to turn, which it always does. And um, well, he he turns it, and he turns. He does. You're right. You're right about that. And it it sometimes strikes me that he does that in a way that uh, befuddles those in the opposition. You're you're no question about it. He's a master of ceremonies of of this kind of stuff. It's true. And and you mentioned uh, early on that. You think the president operates in disregard of institutions and institutional norms. Why is that happening? Are the institutions too weak or are they too uh, amazed at what they are seeing collectively and don't know how to respond? I, I'm deeply worried about where we are um, as, in, as a democracy. Uh, I don't think there's any guarantee that our democracy will last forever. If we don't tend it, it won't. And we've been here 230 years. We're the longest um, lived democracy in the history of humankind. We are, you know, the most powerful uh, economy, at least for the moment, that the world has ever known, the greatest capacity for self-defense, 330 million people coast to coast. None of that would have been imaginable to our founding fathers. None of it would have been imaginable. And yet that's where we are. And in our moment, we are at risk of giving it all away. I think we've had 40 years of an economy that where all the economic growth has gone to the top 10 percent in America and not been shared with everyone else in the country. Democracy strain under that kind of a uh, a lack of uh, economic um, equity for people. And uh, and in the 10 years that I've been in Washington, what I've seen is a bunch of politicians that on uh, moment after moment after moment have not taken care of the institutions we have, but actually have 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 worked to begin to destroy them, not the least of which was the process for approving judges. Um, but that's that's not that's probably not the topic you want to talk about today. Well, I mean, it's related to your book, The Land of Flickering Lights. I mean, you do talk about your time in the Senate and Republican obstructionism. Let's just jump into that right now. Is it all Republican obstructionism, or are Republicans, in fact, speaking for a vocal and important part of the country that wants a certain approach to politics? You started with an important point in the intro to your show, which is that you get you get all the voices on here, and we people do. get to hear all. And when you think about the founding, we don't pander here. Good. And you, when you think about the founding of this country, um, uh, the the founders didn't have in their idea that we would agree with each other. They had in their in their mind that we would disagree with each other. That was the point of living in a democratic republic, because uh, there wasn't a king or a tyrant to tell us what to think, and. It was out of those disagreements they believed that we would fashion more imaginative and more durable solutions than any king or tyrant could come up with on their own. That was an American idea, and that is still an American idea. A transformative one. And a transformative one, absolutely transformative one. We have lost that in our time completely, 
uh, at the national level anyway. And I think I do write in particular about this cast of characters that came to D.C. who called themselves the Freedom Caucus. In my view, that's, that should be an ironic name because they believe they have a monopoly on wisdom. And they were transmitting a cartoon version of what the Founding Fathers were doing. And their view was, it's our way or the highway. And every single moment, they could shut the government down, uh, uh, have a fiscal cliff, uh, uh, you know, make the people's business impossible to go forward. They considered that a victory because it drove down the approval rating of Congress to the point where we now have like a 9% approval rating. And I used to ask myself, why in the world would anybody want to work in a place that has a 9% approval rating? There's actually an answer to that, which is if you think you've been sent here to destroy it, it suits your purposes. Now, the problem is, even though these guys have tried to argue that the government is something else, it's separate from the American people, it isn't something else. It is our exercise in self-government. So if it's destroyed and dismantled, the American people are not left with the the ability to make decisions on behalf of the next generation of Americans or on behalf of the democracy, which is why I think they in particular have been such a uh, problematic is the wrong word, uh, such a terrible um, force in our political system over the last 10 years. And now we have the president who's like the freedom of the, you know, president of the Freedom Caucus. So on January 24th... I don't describe uh, them as Republicans, by the way. You mentioned, yeah. you said they're Republicans. I don't think they look anything like traditional Republicans. They don't look like mainstream Republicans. Colorado, a state that I love and cherish, uh, a third of the people that live in my state are Republicans. And I believe they deserve representation for me, whether they voted for me or not. But what these guys are pursuing here, this anti-climate agenda, you know, the, 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 the unbelievable layering of debt after debt after debt on the balance sheet of the country, uh, uh, the idea that America should draw inward, you know, all that, those things are not traditional Republican points of view. So I would describe them as Freedom Caucus points of view, not as Republican. Or Republi- Trumpian. Or Trumpian. Fair, fair point. But or not Trump. Republican. Not, not in traditional. In any traditional Re- historical sense. In any traditional sense. historical sense, they're not Republican. And they're not conservative. They're not conservative. Trump's not conservative. He's a radical. And these people aren't conservatives. They're radicals. On uh, January 24th of this year, you gave a speech that uh, kind of adjusted the long-running impression of you as a mild-mannered voice on the Senate floor. How ludicrous it is that this government is shut down over a promise the President of the United States couldn't keep and that America is not interested in having him keep. This idea that he was going to build a medieval wall across the southern border of Texas, take it from the farmers and ranchers that were there, and have the Mexicans pay for it, isn't true. That's why we're here. And since then, the government has reopened, as you well know, and as our audience well knows, but the president has taken what I would think you would regard as even more extraordinary measures to fund that wall, to take money appropriated by Congress for military construction, a completely separate purpose, and pull it over to advance either maintenance, repair, and or construction of new barriers. Seriously, how can anybody who calls himself a conservative support this guy? I mean, what I was saying was was one thing, which was he promised the Mexicans would pay for it. He lied about it. But then he was threatening the ranchers on the border with eminent domain to take their land to build his wall. How could any conservative support that? No conservative in Colorado would support that. And and before, now you're and to now your point, you're before for, President Trump came along, it was mostly conservatives who raised alarms about eminent domain land seizures. Can you imagine 
if Barack Obama had said that I'm going to take the land of, of American ranchers, can you imagine what would have happened? What kind of sagebrush rebellion there would have been there? And yet that's exactly what Trump is saying he's going to do. This week he said that's what he's going to do. And, Major, you're right. It's even worse from a conservative's point of view because after that speech, after he was denied the ability, after he folded on the shutdown, and then after Republicans denied him the ability to build the wall, not just Democrats, he then said, okay, well, I'm just going to reprogram money from the Defense Department to build the wall. That's not the way this system works. This is the, that, that, is, that is lawless for him to do that. That's the voice of Michael Bennett, our special guest. Back for segment three. I'm Major Garrett. This is The Takeout. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. The issue is not burning. The issue is Medicare for all. The issue is whether we're going to have a whole bunch of Democrats follow Bernie off the cliff here and lose the election to Donald Trump. That's the issue. And I think that we should not follow Bernie off the cliff. And instead, what we should do is embrace the idea to cut to we should unite around the idea that what we want is a public option. That's the voice of Senator Michael Bennett, our special guest, Democrat of Colorado, also running for the Democratic nomination for the presidency. I'm Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. We're at the Dubliner. Mike has just brought our delicious breakfast. We are very happy to see you, you, Mike, and the food. So uh, that is, we're changing gears a little bit. We're talking about issues before Democrats in this presidential nominating process. Medicare for all is a very big one. You just heard Senator Bennett at a Des Moines AARP forum say the issue's not Bernie. The issue's at Medicare for All. And describing advocacy of and followership of as taking the party off the cliff and essentially guaranteeing Donald Trump re-election. That's how dangerous you see Medicare for All being? Well, I don't know if it guarantees it, but I think that it makes it much harder to beat him if we are running on a health care plan that takes that makes illegal private insurance for 180 million Americans, including 20 million people that are on Medicare Advantage, and charges the um, the middle class in this country a 31 to 33 or more trillion dollar tax increase for the privilege of giving up their insurance. I mean, th- this is a plan that couldn't pass Vermont, and it couldn't pass in California, and it couldn't pass in Colorado. So I, I think it's, you know, in a way... It's just very. I understand Bernie's ideological commitment to this, and I actually respect his integrity because he describes the plan truthfully. I just don't think there's any Meaning way he's the Ameri- willing to admit, and he did at the debate, and others haven't, that middle class taxes will go up. Exactly. He argues, in the main, though, you take all the numbers, wash them all through. If Medicare for all exists, your overall medical expenses will go down. So that tax increase is real but will be compensated for, he says, by lower health care costs. He says that. I don't think America believes that. Do but you? He, he does say that. No, I don't believe that. I think that we have, we do have a massive problem in America with our health care costs being twice as high as any other industrialized country in the world. But I don't think Bernie's plan is going to solve that problem. You need to solve that problem by creating more transparency and a better market for health care than the one we have now. And I think we can solve the coverage problem fairly quickly, which is with a public option and by auto-enrolling people in Medicaid and in uh, in CHIP, which is the kids 
the, the health children's health program insurance program for poor kids. Um, we, you know, I think within three years we'd have everybody covered. We still have the cost issue, though, on top of that. And um, as you well know, Senator, uh, there's a um, ruleful slogan that uh, conservatives like to throw around when it comes to health care policy, which is this. If you think health care is expensive now, wait until it's free. Their point being that you simply cannot create the maximum level of coverage envisioned by Medicare for all at a price point that's acceptable to taxpayers or at an access point that most people would be willing to accept, meaning that there will be delays and there might be some form of rationing. I think that also has been become an excuse for some people to do nothing on our health care system. I, I, this six months ago was in a county in Colorado called Jackson County, very, very conservative place. I started the conversation by apologizing for losing so badly there the last time I ran. And actually the woman who was there from the newspaper said, oh, no, you got 60 more votes than you should have gotten in the county or something. But, but here you had 20. It should have been lower. It should have been lower. Here you had 25 people or so in a room. And during the course of the conversation, it became clear that the only people that had health insurance were the school principal, the county commissioner who said he hadn't had it before he got elected to the county, and that one person who is going to walk over coals. But, like, there, were, there was a couple there. A guy said, we're working 50 hours a week. My wife and I moved back to this town because we grew up here. We wanted to live here. We bought the restaurant. It had a bowling alley attached to it. We've got two vacancies that we want to hire for, but we can't hire anybody, and, and so we're having to cut back hours. I said, why can't you hire anybody? They said, well, because they have to give up their uh, welfare. And I said, what do you mean their welfare? And they said, their Medicaid, their health insurance. So here right. we live in a country where right. you got people that want to work who can't work because if they work, they have to give up their health insurance. They will lose their eligibility. Exactly. And you got people who are working 50 hours a week running a business who can't have health insurance. That is not a health care problem. That is a political problem in this country. We have completely failed to figure out how to just do the most basic blocking and tackling uh, of a country in the industrialized economy. And I think we've got to move past the partisan politics of the last 10 years on health care and get to a place where we're actually solving people's problems so that Americans stop going bankrupt over health care, which is what's happening today. As someone who's an elected official, you know that there is a process by which that happens. People run and voters respond. Right. Considering that truism, describe the state of your presidential campaign. Well, I'm at 1% in the polls. I'm relentlessly at 1% of the polls. Nobody knew who I was before I started running. I am investing money in Iowa today, talking to Iowans about it. Part of what I'm showing them is an editorial that ran in the Des Moines Register with the headline on it, Michael Bennett Pounds Truth into This Campaign, and which I appreciate it, but is a reflection on what I've been trying to do, which is to say, look, our system right now is a complete mess. We've got a reality TV star in charge of the White House. He spends all day watching the cable television instead of doing his job. It'd be better to have a president who we didn't have to think about two weeks at a time. You know, let's have somebody who's actually thinking about what to do about the North Koreans and the Iranians and about our health care system and to deal with climate change instead of making a mockery out of our political debate every single day. And as you said, it changes every day. You know, everybody who follows this guy down his Twitter feed every day, the one thing they know is the next day it's going to be about com something else completely. And we, we have a president who took time yesterday to mock a 16-year-old who had come to the United Nations to talk about climate change, you know. 
We can probably do better than that. How do you react to and how do you process what appears to be a progressive infatuation with ideas that are more either progressive or liberal than yours? Well, I think we've got two different bases of the Democratic Party right now. We have a Twitter base and a social media base. Um, and we have the actual base, which are living, breathing human beings. Uh, and they're the ones that I'm meeting in Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina. And those folks uh, are not for Medicare for all. They are for a public option. They want to have universal health care in this country. They want health care costs reduced because they're strangling their businesses and their families. Um, but they don't support uh, where Bernie is on Medicare for all. So the fact that... Um, and they, and they don't support, to another point that I think you raised or at least looked askance at on the debate stage, the idea of not enforcing or having any penalty for illegal crossing of the border. Right. Exactly. They support what was in the 2013 immigration bill, which I helped write as part of the so-called Gang of Eight that McCain led on the Republican side, um, had a pathway to citizenship for the 11 million people that are here. Uh, it had the most progressive DREAM Act that had ever been um, passed. And unlike Trump, it had $46 billion of border security, not $6 billion stolen from the Pentagon, not $6 billion that Mexico is supposed to pay for, but $46 billion. And, and not medieval border security, but 21st century border security that would allow us to see every single inch of the border uh, night and day, allow us to be able to deal with the fact that 40% of the people that are here that are undocumented came and overstayed their visas, but we don't have any capacity as a country to figure that out. So this, and that, by the way, is every single Democratic senator who is here voted for that legislation, and a bunch of Republicans voted for it, too. Uh, and I think that's where the American people are on this issue. And I, I, by the way, I but think... But what, what, what is the jeopardy for the Democratic Party if the Twitter and social media base, as you described it, prevails? It's that Donald Trump could get another term as president. And that's not just bad for the Democratic Party. That's terrible for America. And I realize it's just my opinion. But I think we can do better than a guy who's told 12,000 lies since he was in office, who who has not revealed what are even in his tax returns, who passed a bill that massively increased our deficits, claiming that it was a tax cut for the middle class when it, almost all of it was going to the wealthiest people in this country, who writes love letters to the uh, tyrant running North Korea and has coddled our enemies and um, and rejected our allies, I think we could do a lot better than that. That's and that doesn't mean having a Democrat necessarily. It just means having somebody other than Donald Trump. That's the voice of Michael Bennett, our special guest. I'm Major Garrett, back for segment four in just a second. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. The DNC process is stifling debate at a time when we need it most. It forces campaigns to force over millions of dollars to Facebook, the same platform that let the Russians interfere in 2016 instead of harnessing the resources to talk to voters. That's the voice of Senator Michael Bennett, our guest this week, talking August 23rd of this year about the Democratic National Committee's process for qualifying for the debate. You were not at the September debate. I am imagining you were unlikely to qualify for the October one. I don't know yet, but, yeah, I wasn't there in September. Right, and uh, it's going to be difficult, to say the least, to qualify for October. 
So a couple of things you mentioned there. We've had uh, Tom Perez, the DNC chairman, on this program twice. And the last time he was on the program, this was before the first debate in Miami. And he said, I won't quote him directly, but in general, look, this is a process by which candidates have to prove themselves. They have to prove themselves by creating a polling following and a donation following. And if you can't do that, then you're not legit. How would you respond? I just think the incentives are, are are whacked out when you've got candidates that are spending $70 on Facebook to get a $1 contribution so they can meet the test. I'm, I, don't, I don't disagree that people should be able to show that they've got support, but you know, I'm the only candidate in this race who's won two statewide elections in a purple state. I think that shows something, uh, but... And and in other words, that should sort of pre-qualify. I would I would think so, but it doesn't in this. In, in and, I, and I want my audience to understand what you're talking about. The seventy dollars for one dollar. Essentially, what you're saying, and other candidates have said the same thing, complaining about this. That to reach the donor threshold, you need to chase donors, and the way, one of the ways you chase them is to send them Facebook ads that you have to pay for. To get them to give you a little yeah, bit of money. It's not even one of the ways. It's really the only way t- that you can do it. Unless you are a, you come into this with sort of a celebrity record. And um, and I don't, you know, I congratulate Bernie and Elizabeth for having had that. But to the extent that what we're doing here is manufacturing donors as a way of demonstrating support, I just think that the incentives are in the wrong place. And frankly, I don't think that ought to be the DNC's job. All of that is self-interested of me to say, of course. But, uh, but uh but I believe it. And this idea that Facebook is making money off of this also bothers you. Uh, look, I had a decision to make. I don't have unlimited amounts of resources, although people can go to michaelbennett.com. I don't have unlimited amounts of resources. So the decision was in front of me was, do I spend the money on Facebook to try to get on the debate stage, or do I spend the money communicating with voters in Iowa and in New Hampshire? And for me, that's what I decided to do. Are you the best alternative out there to Joe Biden? Uh, uh, yes, I think that I am. Better than Amy Klobuchar? I think that I am. Because? Yeah. I have a different set of experiences than everybody else who's running. I was in business, and I was a school superintendent before I even got to the Senate, what I th- which I think uh, uh, is a se- is a, is a, gives a person a perspective that the other folks don't have. And I think I've got a record over the last 10 years of um, working in a bipartisan way to get things done and at the same time holding this president accountable. Are you more or less moderate than Joe Biden? I don't even think about it that way. Um, somebody described me the other day as a pragmatic idealist, and I said, I'll take that. I think that's right. That's what I am. Pragmatic in the sense that I think this is all a waste of time unless we're actually making progress for the next generation of Americans and unless we're restoring America's w- role in the world. And an idealist because... I believe deeply in um, this exercise in self-government that we're involved in. I believe deeply in democracy. I think it's essential to humanity, and I think we cannot destroy it here in the United States. We have to lift it up. You know, my my mom and her parents were Polish Jews who survived the Holocaust, and miraculously, they and an aunt were the only ones that survived. And after the war was over, they lived for two years in Warsaw, then went to Stockholm for a year, then went to Mexico City for a year, and then came to this country. And I've never met anybody in America with a stronger accent than my grandparents had, never. And I've never met people who are greater patriots than they are. And they got a lot out of America, and they gave a lot to America. And that's the way this place is supposed to work. And frankly, it's an embarrassment that, you know, we had a set of 
uh, economic and institutional issues that led us to decide that the right answer for our kids was putting Donald Trump in the presidency. He's somebody who, if he were on the playground, we would never let him play with the other kids. If he were, you know, if you were hiring at your insurance company or at your real estate company, you'd never hire him to be in your insurance company or your real estate company. But we decided he should be president because we had that degraded a view of, frankly, what is our system of self-government. It's our responsibility. It's not somebody else's. And unless we start to live up to it, we're going to be passing shards off to our kids and our grandkids instead of the great country that we inherited from our parents and our grandparents. That's truly what I think is at stake in this election. And uh, you need to be what in Iowa to continue on? I thought I need to outperform in Iowa and New Hampshire, I think, to continue on. And I'm not going to say today, but I, I need to do well in both those places. And I think that I can. You know, Gary Hart came out to, uh, my predecessor came out to uh, New Hampshire the other day to uh, endorse me and to tell the story about how he went from being one at the same time we were in the race to getting crushed by Walter Mondale in Iowa, but he won 16% in Iowa. And even though he was crushed by Mondale, that was enough for him to then go on and win in New Hampshire. So I think the voters in Iowa and New Hampshire are just beginning to to look at the candidates and to make decisions. And I don't think they're really going to decide until the week, the month before the Iowa caucus. And something you should remember, audience, about all the polls you see right now, uh, go down to the statistic in most of those polls that say whoever is expressing a preference is locked in. It's usually in the single digits. Right. Nine percent right now are saying they're locked in. So there's flexibility there. And, You're, and you, you'll be you will be campaigning up and through the Iowa caucuses in the New Hampshire primary. That's my plan. That's your plan. That's my plan. Not your guarantee, but your plan. Well, I'm, 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 it's my guarantee. How's that sound? All right. Very good. That sounds newsy. Before I let you go, I want to talk to you about Colorado and its uh, very hard experience with mass shootings, Columbine and Aurora. Um, what's the remedy and where are we? Um, I've raised my Susan and I have raised three daughters in Colorado that are now 20, 19, and 15. Uh, and like like the rest of America's children, they've gone to school in the shadow of knowing something terrible could happen to them at school and with the knowledge that our national government has been completely incapable of doing anything over that 20-year period to address it. Where Colorado, which is a purple state and a western state and a Second Amendment state, after Columbine, we, um, we uh, passed background check bills. The very bill that Mitch McConnell won't put on the floor now – we passed in Colorado almost 20 years ago. After Aurora, we passed limits on magazines because we didn't think that anybody needed to have a 100-round magazine in our western state, uh, in our Second Amendment state. And if we can do those two things in Colorado, I don't know why we shouldn't do those two things um, nationally. And frankly, um, people that support McConnell in all this should be, should be saying to him, why don't you put this thing on the floor to have a vote? He doesn't even let it come to the floor. That's the voice of Michael Bennett, our special guest. It's Senator. It's been a great pleasure to have Thank you. you. Thanks, Thanks for having breakfast, breakfast with us. Let and the record reflect that I ate my breakfast he while I was on the radio. On camera. On See you camera. next week. See ya. Bye. For more from this week's conversation, download the Takeout Outtake Especial Tuesday morning, wherever you get your podcasts. The Takeout is produced by Arden Farin, Katiana Krachenko, Jamie Benson, 
Sarah Cook, and Ellie Watson. CBSN production by Alex Zuckerman, Eric Susanen, and Grace Seegers. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, visit TakeoutPodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker. The Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News Business Analyst, Certified Financial Planner, and host of the Money Watch Podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.